Love the cases. Love the clauses. Love the adverbs and the antecedents. Love the words. From ELFM. Hello and welcome to Love the Words from East Leeds FM in Chapel FM Arts Centre in East Leeds. So for the next six months at Chapel FM we're going to be hosting our first publisher in residence, People Tree Press. People Tree have been in Leeds for many years doing fantastic work both in this country and abroad internationally and uh, yeah, we're going to be talking as part of that residency to three or four writers on Love the Words over the next um, few weeks. Um, writers who are published by People Tree. And the first is Ira Matur, who was born in India, now lives in Trinidad, uh, is a writer and a journalist, and has a fantastic new book out with People Tree Love the Dark Days, a memoir. So, um, I am going to be talking in a few minutes' time to Ira from Trinidad, and uh, yeah, it's 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 wonderful to have people tree with us. And do if you are passing Chapel FM, do drop in and and look at our collection of people tree uh, books and buy one if you like, because uh, we'll go online and see what they've got on the website. They there's no other publisher I think internationally who's done more for the work of Caribbean writers. So first of all, on to Ira Matu. So I think I, I belong to another time. My dad was in the Indian Army and uh, I moved around India quite a lot because he moved to different cities where, according to where his posting took him. And it was a very dreamy time for me because my parents, my mother's Muslim and she was cut off from her family because, uh, you know, she married my father who's Hindu and she comes, they come from, if you can imagine different backgrounds in India, they couldn't be, you know, more different. Um, dad was, came from a fairly conservative Hindu family from the city of Aligarh, became a, 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 an army officer and, uh, you know, fought three wars, including against Pakistan and India. And mom came from the old Raj. So her, um, her, her father was the uncle, was the, was the nephew of the Nawab of Bhopal, which was the second largest state in India at the time. And also, you know, her, her mother was in those days, the princess of a very small state of the Raj um, called Savanur. And they somehow met in Bangalore. They met over, I think this is so apt, they met over piano lessons. My father <laughs> decided as a young army officer, as a captain, that he should learn to play the piano in a, as every good colonial did in those times. And um, <laughs> so they, they met over piano lessons and my father rescuing my mother over some dogs, which decided to attack her. She was terrified as two Alsatians had, had bitten her because they were 
their tails were the same color as a carpet. And in those days, you had to have loads of injections. So I think my whole childhood was, you know, they say the, the children of lovers are orphans. And I think because my parents had this really whirlwind kind of great Gatsby life, I, I was completely unaware of the trauma of, you know, what happened during independence where, you know, more than a Muslim Hindus and Muslims were butchered across the lines when India was divided quite brutally into three. I was uh, unaware of all the politics of colonialism. What I was aware of as a child was the very mixed childhood that I grew up in. You know, I had these very beautiful parents who were at the officer's mess every night or having parties at home. You know, the idea that there would be a band outside with, you know, um, with bagpipes I had no idea of the context of that, but of course that was the Scottish who had come along during during um, colonialism. And so I think my, I was left to my own resources. It was in some senses, if you can think of <laughs> a kind of, uh, a kind of echo of an old Victorian home. So there were lots of books. Uh, there was the piano and, um, and I would be left on my own for a lot, lot of the time. And because we moved so many states, you know, we moved from state to state and each language in India, as you may know, has a each state in India has a separate language so that I, I actually came last in class with every different state we went to, because, you know, if we were if we were in Bangalore, it was Kannada, Hindi and English. And if we were in Chandigarh, it was Punjabi, uh, Hindi and English. And, you know. And I ended up being fairly lonely and I and I read quite a lot. My sister lived with my grandmother and my brother was deemed to be very um, a, a troubled, you know, not a troubled, but a difficult boy. So he was very easily consigned to a boarding school. Um, so, yeah, that my childhood was full of reading. And of course, I was sent to my grandmother for long periods of time. My grandmother was also she was married to the Nawab of um, the nephew of the Nawab of Popal. But more than that, you know, she was a pianist. And she wanted to go to Vienna when she was 17. She got a scholarship. Her English teacher and her, her piano teacher in India at the time felt that she would be good enough to be a concert pianist, a classical concert pianist. So I grew up with her and, of course, more books. And I think that I, I told somebody the other day that I felt that even though I was a child of 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, I felt that I was 600 years old because my grandmother poured she had a photographic memory as well. She was extraordinary. And she poured all the Mughal history into me. She poured the sense of loss of, um, of what happened because, of course, her family had colluded with the empire in a way because her great-great-grandfather was brought across from Uzbekistan to fight in the uh, mutiny of 1857. And... And, you know, he was in the position of having to kill Muslim and Hindu soldiers um, in order to ensure that the British remained intact in India. So he came back with stories of how, you know, um, British, uh, the Indian soldiers who mutinied were kind of strapped on to these cannons and blown into smithereens and not even a tooth could be found just to teach them a lesson. Um, so... It, it was a strange kind of collusion. And I think the echo of that remains up to today, which is why a lot of Indians, you know, think at the height of, you know, um, you know uh, of achievement if you land in a British 
um, boarding school. My great grandmother went to uh, Eastbourne. She went to boarding school in England. She was one of the first um, Muslim women to go abroad to boarding school. And, you know, they learned to fence and ride and, and they learned to speak English and play the piano. But at the same time, I think what was also happening was the disintegration of, um, of families after 1947. And then again, after Indira Gandhi came into power, when she abolished all the, she abolished the Raj, it was in, in pieces. And all these old families who depended on the privy purse somehow didn't have it anymore. And suddenly they realized, oh my God, we're on our own. Sorry, that's a very, very long <laughs> answer. Um, but yes, it, it was very mixed. So we loved Absolutely. England and we also didn't realize the damage of it. Yeah. Fascinating uh, era. No, it's it's not a word too long. I I, I, I loved in in the book. Was it in, a, in the book or not? I think it was in a piece of you, that's on your website in, in regard to books and your grandmother. My first memory is my grandmother reading the Arabian Nights to me on a rainy day in Bangalore which is 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 a wonderful picture anyway and it's also full of sound and I think I did feel that Love the Dark Days is 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 full of sound and full of color and full of pictures um, but that really conveys your attachment to books and to literature from a very very early age but you went from India to to Trinidad what 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 how, how did you end up being where you are my father was in the Indian army and he had a heart attack. And I think at that point, there was a kind of cap as to how soldiers who had been ill could rise in the army to general, say. And I think he decided at the time that he would apply for jobs outside of India. He was 40 or 39 at the time. He, he went to various embassies and found that there was a little place called Tobago and it needed a highway done. He had no idea about Tobago. And you know he he is a very adventurous uh, person, and he just applied, got the job, decided to leave the army, and uh, came here. I mean, the other part of that was, of course, in uh, Indra. He didn't quite approve of the Indra Gandhi, who was prime minister of India at that time, um, because you know she she had some very repressive um, policies in place. And, you know, she was imprisoning people. There was also the sense that um, India, as an army officer and as a young boy, my father grew up hearing Gandhi on the radio, right? And he, he's, in his, he's just turned 90. And he felt that, uh, he felt very let down by the Congress because he felt that uh, they sold India down the river. You know, when he, he took me to that beautiful house in, in Simla, which is kind of a, it, it's very similar to Windsor, Windsor Manor. It's in the hills, it's in the Himalayas. And he said, you know, this is where um, Mountbatten sat down with Nehru and Jinnah. And they took this huge place called India, which is more of a continent than anything else. And they kind of brutally shoved it, you know, cut it apart um, without actually having any engagement with the people as to how that would work out. So he was very resentful about what the Congress party had done to India. He didn't think that the partition was a necessary thing. He'd fought in wars against Pakistan. And he says he remembers being in the trenches and uh, you know seeing soldiers that had died due to the landmines he'd laid and going and you know looking into their po pockets and seeing you know, notes of prayer and hope and love from their mothers. And because my father ironically 
uh, went to an Aligarh Muslim university in because it was the only university in his um, in his uh, city, he could read Urdu. And the great irony of this is that that Muslim university, um, the Aligarh Muslim University was actually created by my mother's great grandmother, Sultan, uh, Sultan Begum of Bhopal, who was one of the Begums of Bhopal, Sultan Jahan Begum. So I don't think they realized that, you know, that uh, history would collide the way it did. And my father at that point, I think was ready to leave India. He had been uh, you know, he was very disillusioned with the army. He was disillusioned with India. And I think he was deeply saddened by all the divisions he'd seen. So you you came to Trinidad and Tobago you, and you've, you're, you have played a role with your writing in terms of documenting the kind of modern history of Trinidad and Tobago uh, through journalism. And um, you've talked about, it'd be great to hear a bit about your journalism and also to talk about the process of kind of going from journalism to to fiction writing to memoir writing as well and the differences you find between those two things but first of all yeah tell us how you got into journalism and uh, what you felt and feel your role is within journalism well you know I've always been bookish and I, I, I got into journalism by chance my father took me to Canada to study business because he said that, you know, women need to look after themselves because men are bastards. He doesn't mince his words. So, <laughs> but then when he came to my graduation, he found that I'd switched to philosophy and he said, what are you going to do with philosophy? And, um, and then he kind of enrolled me at the City University in London to study journalism. And there I met in the master's program, you know, journalists, all people who were already journalists from all around the world. And suddenly I had an idea of, of you know, of how important journalism was to bring, to give voice to the voiceless. Because I mean, in those days there was still apartheid. And in those days, you know, there was issues in Nicaragua. And I mean, the issues were different, but there were huge pockets of trouble all around the world. And I got to meet these, I was a very young person and I think the youngest in my class, but I got to meet very seasoned journalists and I learned about what was happening around the world. And my sense of injustice of what was happening to people everywhere through personal stories grew. Um, and be because I had an editor called Daniel Nelson, who used to run a, an agency called the Gemini News Agency, which was a developmental um, agency. And they got journalists from all around the world to write pieces from really far flung corners, from villages everywhere. And they collated it in Gemini and they sent it out to the world again. I mean, in fact, my grandmother called me once and she was she read the Deccan Herald in Bangalore and she said, darling, I've seen a piece of yours and it's, I can't imagine how it's arrived in Bangalore from, you know, it went to different countries and came back. So I think my sense of injustice happened then, um, uh, you know, of wanting to be a part of redressing it. Um, and when I came to Trinidad, I was very, very bewildered because I didn't understand the society at all. It was, there were people who looked like me, Indians, but they didn't speak Hindi. Uh, there were people, you know, there were people from all around, from the continents of the world. And they all spoke this different, in a different language, in a, in a lilt that was different and a language that seemed to have its own code. And every year it was, you'd see the carnival bands come out and people, 
pouring down the streets of Trinidad um, like rivers in beautiful plumed costumes or in all white. And, you know, you just thought, oh, my gosh, you know, who are these people? So I think I spent a long time. I, I got into radio at first and I did a little stint at the BBC and I gradually came, I think, my journalism came out of the love of these islands and also a couple of brilliant editors who called me to one side because of course I grew up like an army brat and they basically said were you a Brahmin or something I was like no <laughs> I'm fairly casteless and he's like in Trinidad and Tobago when you come into work you say good morning to everyone and I had this one particular editor called Raul Panton also a poet and they, you know he's he's dead now and he basically said to me Martha, you need to learn how to be a proper journalist. So I know you want to go and interview the people in Central Bank and you want to go to Parliament, but here's what you have to do. You have to go to um, Laventil and you have to go to the where the areas of there's gang members. You have to go to Curep where, with the prostitutes. You have to go to the far flung coastal areas where there's uh, where drugs are coming in. And, you know, you have to go to the dump to see what's happening um, in terms of our waste. And he said, and I'm so grateful to him. I carried that heavy tripod and I learned Trinidad. He sent me to the prisons. So I was in sitting in the prisons with people who'd been on death row talking about how they they ended up on, on death row. And I think in actually hearing the stories of people who didn't have a voice, who were marginalized, and this also included the LGBTQ community. He said, go down and see what they do at nights at 2 a.m. when they, you know, when when there's cross-dressing, when they can be themselves with certain and I think I, I ended up having a real sense of community with a lot of these people. And perhaps part of me, because I felt like a, like I told you, the children of lovers are orphans. And in my own way, I felt, I felt, uh, I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. And so when I was with people like this, I felt like I became corporous. I was able to see their stories. And I think by, by humanizing them, I was able to humanize myself. Well, there's a there's a, a great range of samples of your journalism on your website, Eras Room, uh, which I do recommend anybody to to look at. This it's fascinating. I, I didn't. I'm afraid I'm I'm ignorant about Trinidad and Tobago, apart from being a massive cricket fan and always oh, wanting yes. to go and watch a test, test match in Port of Spain. <laughs> you must come. <laughs> I must do it one day, uh, and Brian Lara. Uh, but um, yes, I'm I'm I. I Vera, before we go on, uh, we always ask uh, guests to choose uh, a couple of pieces of music. And talking about your parents and and the fact that they were lovers, you've chosen a very romantic piece of music, um, which I think also pertains to uh, with your grandmother, which is a Lara's theme from Dr. Shivago. Would you do you want to tell us why you've why you have chosen that piece? I think because it it's filled with nostalgia and. Uh, and love that's unfulfilled and that yet still goes on. My grandmother was married to a very handsome man who was older than her, but he was also a playboy and he broke her heart. She left him, but even in Trinidad, when she was dying in her 80s, and he would have been dead 40 years because he died quite young, 
she still said, you know, that bastard, the only man I lo ever loved, Saidu Zafar Khan, the only man I ever loved. And I got an idea of love then through her, that it actually doesn't have to do with being reciprocated. It doesn't have to do with even the person being alive. It just has to do with some human being who is who ignites something within you that never leaves and something that none of us can explain. And to me, that her being in love with a man who let her down so badly, I know that it's a little bit romantic, but I, uh, you know, I, I, we as young children, we used to sit there and watch her playing Lara's theme on the piano and we had tears pouring down our cheeks, my, my sister and myself as seven and 11 year olds, because we could tell that this was something that went beyond being just the everyday human. So that was Laura's theme, chosen by the journalist and writer Ira Matula, um, who is talking to us on Lovely Words from Trinidad. So it would be great if you wouldn't mind just reading a little section of the book so we could get a flavour of it. Sure, I'm, I'm just going to read right from the beginning, actually. Kelly Village, Trinidad, 2000. I would like to see a kite in the blank blue sky. This rootless place of sameness is not where she or we thought she would end her days. Mummy, Daddy, Winky, Angel and I have been standing under the shed watching Bari Mummy's grave being dug. She has been dead for less than 24 hours. The noonday sun bounces off lumpy graves covered in thick, weedy grass, off whitewashed houses on stilts skims over the fields to the narrow river where it rests its egg yolk reflection. Barimami is inside an open wooden box on the concrete floor to our right, swaddled from head to foot like a mummy in two yards of white cotton. This is the two yards of what white cotton she always talked about, carried about with her, repeatedly replaced. It is now being put to use. Her creamy skin, of which she was so proud, is now a marmoreal jaundiced yellow, its dull shine reflecting the harsh light as if it were crumbling bust in a museum. The round-faced mortician with the red hennaed beard informed us 
he had turned her head to the east the previous night before she get too stiff. It is so quiet I can hear the flapping of Angel's green dupatta against her narrow shoulders. Angel never thought Barimami would actually die. My first memory of Angel is that of a chubby, pink-faced three-year-old stumbling around in the many rooms of Rest House Road crying, saying that Barimami was dying of a broken heart. Barimami had then appeared and asked, what would Angel do in this big house by herself? The two wept, unaware of anyone else. Angel says, no, decidedly, when the mortician says, this is our last chance to touch her face. She had already had her time doing that yesterday evening when she lay down on Barimami's bed with her and stroked her still warm face for almost an hour till the white van came to take Barimami away. When the paperwork was finished and the body released from the funeral home, Angel wanted to climb in because, as she explained patiently to everyone who tried to prevent her, Barimami will be alone. She needs me. We held Angel back while the van raced into the dark. If I close my eyes, I reach back to the beginning when we were young and in her care in 17 Rest House Road. Oh, it's lovely. Thank you so much for reading that, Era. So that's the beginning of Love the Dark Days, published by People Tree Press. Um, so how did the book come about at this moment in time? You know, it's very odd. I wrote about my, I, I wrote a little piece about my family in the UK Guardian, I think in 2001, when I was hoping to expand my journalistic win, wings. And oddly, uh, an agent called me from Little Brown at the time and said, would you like to write about your family? Now think about how many years ago that was. <laughs> I said, sure. And then, you know, having children, uh, journalism and my life just I was too young to have I think written that then but Barimami my grandmother came to stay with me and she died here in those intervening years and she lodged herself into my heart like a stone my grandmother and as if to say you have to tell my story because I was surrounded by relics of her past I was surrounded by with her photograph for when she graduated, you know, in music. Uh, the, her honeymoon in Vienna when she was brokenhearted, I think when her husband had already started kind of making eyes at other people, other women. And, I, you know, what it was like in, in the old days, just all her papers, mountains of letters. And then I went to Bhopal in between. And it was shocking because I went to where she'd been as a bride. Uh, to my mother's ancestral home and they let they sent me upstairs to the attic and they said you know go and your grandparents things are in this trunk and so I opened it one night while everybody was asleep in Bhopal overlooking the lake where she what she must have seen as a bride and to my shock this this trunk revealed thousands of letters or hundreds of letters it couldn't have been thousands of my grandmother when she was very young and a bride and she was being spied on by the English housekeeper called Stella. And every day Stella wrote letters to my grandfather who was at the races in Bombay saying what my grandmother used to be doing. And, you know, she said complaining about how she would come out 
into the courtyard with a dressing gown that was see-through or ordering too many uh, riding uh, things from, I think, the various army and navy stores at the time. And then, of course, there were those fascinating love letters to my grandfather from all these women and also letters from uh, a lot of people in Europe asking for help through Nazi Germany. He had a very big heart and he kind of gave away almost everything that he had. So he helped women, men, people escape, you know, from, from Germany at the time. Uh, there were invitations to uh, various embassies. There were, you know, it was just, it was just quite shocking to just enter this world. And at the time I didn't actually feel like this belonged to me, although these were letters from my grandparents. There was my great grandmother's letter saying, I know my child is headstrong, but stick with her, you know, or if you don't love her, let us know, but we want you to be kind to her in the end. So there was all these ghosts coming back. And I, I never felt like any of this actually belonged to me. I always felt like I was a little bit on the outside. So I took all these, uh, some of these letters, there was no way I could take all, and I stuffed them beneath my shawl. And I kind of rushed to the room where, where we were staying at the time and shoved them in my suitcase and brought them home. And I started going over them. And, uh, and, and I think her story lodged more and more in my head and I won, and I thought, you know what, I have to write the story of this woman who lived during the Raj, but had such a painful life, you know, of one man who left her. And then she married a quite a, a man who was very, very unkind to her, who ironically was a, a, a general in the army in Pakistan. And it's so odd, there, I, there's my father fighting against Pakistan, and there's my grandmother who'd married into another you know, he was actually a cousin of hers. He reportedly fell off, fell off a horse at the races, looked at her and said, you're the most beautiful creature I've seen. Will you marry me? And she and he was already married at the time. And but he was not a very nice man. But she she uh, she composed uh, songs for the Pakistani soldiers at the time because she was a, she was also a composer. So I find it quite bizarre that my grandmother's army songs might still be sung by Pakistani soldiers and my father was laying down landmines against Pakistan and I thought you know I have to write about this because her her voice was constantly in my head and her sheets of music and her letters so it took me lots of time and I eventually wrote it uh, you know it took me I think this goes back to a previous question I don't know if you'd like to ask it again in a, another incarnation about how the difference between journalism and creative writing, it's shockingly different. Yes, do talk about that because we, yeah, we, we, in our email exchange before this interview, you mentioned that that was a kind of question that exercised you quite a bit, but tell us, yes, what is, I mean, obviously there is a difference, but for you, what are those differences about? I think it took me so long because in uh, when I started creative writing here in Trinidad, a wonderful woman called Marina Salandi Brown start, started up a literary festival here, maybe around 2011. And then I started meeting writers from all over the world. You know, there was uh, there was Monique Roffey, there was a, who won the Costa uh, 2020. There was Amanda Smith, and as as the years rolled on, there was. Marlon James, I mean, if you think about the amount, the number of literary people that have come out of Trinidad and, you know, both Monique and Amanda have been published by People Tree Press. 
And I think Amanda is, well, she, I know she's uh, now been shortlisted for the Walter Scott Prize. So if you think about the, uh, it's almost an embarrassment of riches uh, out that have come out of Trinidad. Um, you know, Lisa Allen Agostini is currently, um, I think, shortlisted for the Women's Prize, also purely out of Trinidad without an agent. But we had Marina Salandi Brown started that, you know, in Trinidad. She started a literary festival here. And, you know, she started a Bocas Prize. And of course, the first prize was given to Derek Walcott. And I came into closer contact with him then. And I started doing some interviews there as a journalist. And I thought, you know, I need to do this book. And uh, I realized when I first started it, that actually it was completely opposite from journalism. Uh, from the first few chapters that I did, and I showed Monique Roffey these chapters in various workshops. And she said, you need to go really slow. And in journalism, you need to go really fast. <laughs> you need to come to the point right away because you know that you have only certain inches of newspaper. And if you don't come to the point in the first two paragraphs, everything else could get cut. And I try, I try to rush it. And eventually, I think Monique did encourage me. She encouraged me to go to England to, um, to attend some workshops. And, and I think I, I learned the craft there over two over a very lonely winter. I learned it and uh, I went to the UEA Guardian Masterclass um, with James Scudimo and Gillian Slovo. And I also attended a Faber class in novel writing with the amazing Maggie G. And I think Derek Walcott saw some incarnations of this work. I think he'd been following this is the, the Nobel laureate. I mean, because he because these islands are so small, it's not name dropping. It's like people you know that you meet around the savannah. And he said, you know, I've been following your columns. Um, do you have have you written anything? And he read some of my work. Um, and I think it was just I had spent some time in England when I came back, and he invited me for a weekend to St. Lucia. And he said, I want to see your work. And he was not the easiest of men, you know, uh, because he was so hugely successful, I suppose. And he was in himself a hugely dynamic man with, with um, I mean, a, a Herculean knowledge of, of words and poetry and sensibility. And I spent that weekend with him. And uh, I have to say, as, as a guest of his and his, partner Sigrid and I stayed in the same cottage as other Nobel laureates and I, I certainly got imposter syndrome I was like what the hell am I doing here you know um, you know Seamus Heaney and, and all these people had you know uh, had, had stayed in that very cottage and um, in the first night unfortunately I, I was lying there kind of dawdling on the bed wondering what the hell I was doing there and I, I boiled an egg and I, and I kind of crashed their stove. So there were splinters of glass all over. And I think I kind of, um, I did the weekend, I, I bookended the, uh, the, no, the memoir, which is written more like a novel around that one weekend where I got a lot of advice from him. He, he died not long after, I think a year later, he was already on a wheelchair. But I think this act of um, reading my work and commenting on it was a huge act of generosity. Derek felt that in the, Caribbean, in the Caribbean, we were magical islands. And by then I started to believe that because um, if you think of a small island in the Caribbean, I mean, smaller than most towns in England or village in India, you put together former 
people who had been enslaved, right? You put, you bring people who hurt, you add to that melee people who were brought here as indentured laborers by the colonials, by the French, Spanish, and the British to work on cocoa and cotton and coffee and sugar. You add the Arabs who came along uh, to, uh, as part of the immigrants looking for a new life. You add Chinese people to that mix. You add the Venezuelans and the people who came from Latin America here looking for another kind of life. Several generations of migration. Now remember that people who came here as slaves or as indentured laborers quickly lost language. Language was gone. So they had to start from scratch. And that is what Derek Walcott meant about a society having to reinvent itself leaf by leaf. We found ourselves in the landscape. We found ourselves in, in, in an atavistic memory of drumming and in an atavistic sense of family. And slowly these people, strands of five continents met, percolated in a tiny spot and created something so magical. And how else do you explain, Peter? How else do you explain that two Nobel laureates have come out of here? Derek Walcott, we claim, but V.S. Naipaul also, you know, and, and a disproportionate number of writers, if you think of this day and this month, a disproportionate number of writers out of Trinidad. I think that kind of percolation and that loss, you see the loss of language brought with it some real magic because it also brought a loss of atavistic hatred. It brought a loss of that, you know, we have very fixed ways of being as humans like my grandmother was and that broke her. But because you come to these islands and your identity has been, is not, is like zero. It's, it's, a, it's, it's like dough, it can be, become anything. And that is why I think my parents did so well here. One Muslim, one Hindu. They came here with their mixed up children and we fit right in because here we're all mixed. We're all blended. And I think, you know, when I think about the racial disharmony in different parts of the world, as a journalist, I'm aware 34 wars around the world. I'm aware what happened in Gujarat when Muslims were slaughtered um, under the then Modi who was, who was the minister. Uh, it doesn't happen here. People go to one another's, everybody attends Diwali celebrations, everybody attends Eid celebrations. It's a bit long, but almost every official function starts with at least four types of worship from four different communities, the Baptist, the Hindu, the Muslim. And I think, you know, these islands have been absolutely magical. And that is where, uh, that is where I was able to write about it, especially after he died, I was able to see what the, you know, his, his memo to me had been, there are as many points of view on our, in our New World Islands and the Caribbean as there are people. Write yours, write authentically and write in the present. Don't have that nostalgia for the past because it doesn't really serve us. Write about it, but in context. And that's where I found the context of, of, of I think colonialism, which also was brutal. Well, my head is swirling, Kira. <laughs> I, I definitely want to come to Trinidad now and, uh, and read everything that's come out of Trinidad. Um, and it's uh, just just uh, two things I wanted to ask you before we sadly have to, to sign off. One, 
one would be if i mean this is probably an invidious question but uh of all the writers who have come out of trinidad um is there a work or a writer that you would um that you would recommend to somebody completely new to writing from trinidad oh gosh it is because i'm going to they're all my friends and um you know, know it's a terrible question to ask but <laughs> yeah. I, I i thought i'm going to try it out anyway because you did mention that that one of the vs night paul novels uh you said very categorically in one of your articles is the best novel ever written i would say so i would say I, you know i have to say that out of trinidad is vs night paul was known when he was alive as the greatest living writer in english imagine this man from shidwarnas in a tiny village in trinidad I have to say probably the greatest novel that has ever been written is his Gorillas, is V.S. Naipaul's Gorillas. And one of the greatest work, of, I think, of poetry, I have to say, is Omeros. And um, it's, it's, uh, what, it's Derek Walcott's uh, praise to our island. And it's a way of reassembling uh, how the shattered remains of, of colonialism. You know, it's our own Homer, it's, it's, uh, and, and, you know, he's, he's reassembled us. And I think it's also created some, created some form of healing, but, you know, in terms of, I can't, I won't say contemporary because I have to say that, you know, you just have to glue Google Trinidad and Tobago writing. And, you know, the number of writers that have come out of here, astonishing, but I have to mention People Tree's own Amanda Smith, who has been, shortlisted for the Walter Scott Prize for her lovely novel Fortune and I must also mention Monique Roffey for uh, the mermaid um, her the mermaid book which was of course um, which of course won the Costa Prize in 2020 so those are the two ones that have stood out and uh, yeah and I and I'm so I'm so proud and happy to be part of this this movement of, of writing here well, we hope to be speaking to Amanda uh, shortly in this series of Love the Words. Oh, so, wonderful. So hoping to do that. And Omeros, yes, I must go back to that. I've got it somewhere. I'm reading a book by Adam Nicholson about Homer called The Mighty yes. Dead, which is, so you Ooh. might have read, this is fascinating, all about uh, Homer and the Odyssey. So that's that's one of those lovely little connections that sometimes bubble up when you talk to people yes. um, and uh, i would recommend to listeners do get a hold of era's new book which is love the dark days which reminded me in some ways i era do you know amit chowdhury the novelist um he wrote a, a lovely book called strange and sublime address which is an intimate family portrait of, of growing up in calcutta probably in the 1980s 1970s and it's beautiful uh, and in some ways your book reminded me had that kind of physicality um, and tenderness actually about 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 it that that, that book has um finally um you, you've talked about uh, and you write a lot about tragedy and about about horror really and, and and in terms of colonialism and slavery and and in the in the modern era as well and i mean where do you you, you talked about virginia wolf and what she and a quote you quote from her common fund of of humanity runs deep um and that we are all and this is actually i think this is this is you we are similar in heart even as we are varied and wondrous in the way we express ourselves 
in architecture, customs, fashion, art. But do you, yeah, do you see hope at the moment in this world? Oh, absolutely. I see so much hope and I especially see hope in young people who are not, they're not wedded to the past in the way we were. And I think, um, you know, when you see the amazing amount of uh, writing that's coming out of very young, from very young people, I think that actually, and who are very aware, and yes, there is a cancel culture, there's always the danger of tipping over. Uh, and we need to watch that, but I see so much hope. And I see the actually the world coming together in a way that it never has with technology, even though it has, I mean, look at us, we would have probably not met. But Peter, I don't want to leave this interview without actually mentioning the people who I feel are the greatest editors in England and without whom this book would not have been published. And I'm speaking of Jeremy Pointing, who took my book and as well as, uh, you know, I think Hannah, who, Hannah Bannister, who, who works with him, um, I think Jeremy has been amazing for Caribbean writing and black writing. And, uh, you know, and alongside him, Jacob Ross, who first read my book. So I need to mention these three people from People Tree Press, because without them, I wouldn't have a book today. So... Well, as as uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, we are hosting as our first publisher in residence, People Tree Press, and uh, we're very proud of them here in Leeds. <laughs> yes. Um, so finally, I've said that a few times now, but it's it's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you, Ira. You you chose another piece of of, of music by uh, the Mighty Sparrow. So perhaps you could tell us about Jean and Dinah. Well, you know, very briefly, I think. Um, Trinidad was a was a base for the Americans um, after the Second World War, and remember, and where, where you know they brought all their soldiers here, and this this song was written, I think, when the Amer after the war, when the Americans were withdrawing from here, withdrawing their base, and uh, it's by one of our most famous Calypsonians at at the time in the 50s and he up to today he is he's around today he's you know <laughs> bless him uh this is a sparrow and i think that everybody would have heard of sparrow um you know if you've got a slight uh, inclination towards world music you would have heard of him and it's a delightful song and i and i really really hope that you all enjoyed. It's about you know the pro the soldiers and the pr prostitutes meeting on the streets, and I think that that it's such a vivid idea. It gives you a really vivid sense of what was happening in Trinidad in pre-independence. Thank you very much for talking to us, Ira. Thank you. Something they sell it. And if you get them broke, you can get them all.
the haiku, love the sonnet, love the quatrain and the couplet, love the words, from East Leeds FM. (laughs) 